When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey guys, welcome back to the Cowboy Stories. Today I had the opportunity to visit with Ed Ashurst. He and his wife live in southeastern Arizona, and I'm excited for you to hear his story. When you're finished with this podcast episode and you decide that you want to hear more about his life, he's actually written several books that are available on Amazon. So you can just go online and search Ed Ashurst and his books will pop up and they're available for purchase on Amazon. My name's Ed Ashurst. I was born in Wickenburg, Arizona, in 1951. At that time, my dad had a little nester place up the river from Wickenburg, 10 miles, and kind of come from an old pioneer family, had livestock ranches, was involved to some degree with cows and horses when I was a kid and have made my living in the cow business since 1969. That's the short story. Yeah, that's cool. So were your your parents and your grandparents involved in that kind of lifestyle too? Well, my dad was off and on, not all the time. My granddad had been when he was a child, his dad, his dad, my great granddad had a big ranch in Northern Arizona, before that, Northern California. Uh, And my great granddad was killed in the Grand Canyon in 1901. And his wife sold out and went back to California. And my granddad, he worked for several big ranches and he did a lot of things eventually he went to law school and became an attorney and a judge and uh, my dad never really liked to do anything except mess with cows and horses but he did do a lot of other stuff when i was growing up so okay out of it. so what made you so interested in this kind of lifestyle and want to make a living at it? Uh, the truth is, when I was a senior in high school, I didn't know what I wanted to do. Vietnam was going full blast. And in April of my senior year, they come out with a lottery on the draft, and I got a high number <laughs> and was insured of not getting drafted. And uh, 
had I been drafted, I would have gone. My dad was a Marine, was wounded on Iwo Jima. And, I mean, I wasn't a war protester, but mm-hmm. I wasn't really wanting to go either. And I just the day after I graduated from high school, I got a job on a real big ranch and went to work there. And I didn't really know what I was doing, but... uh It was a ranch south of Winslow that at that time was owned by Clemens Cattle Company. They were big operators, steer people, lots of Mexican steers. They had multiple ranches around Arizona. And uh, it was a 300 section ranch, had about 5,000 steers. And I went to work there, and then I did... uh, I tried to rope and rodeo a little and worked in a gas station that next winter for a couple months. And then I went back to work on that ranch. And then I went to work underground in a mine the next winter when for about four months. And I hated that. And that's that's kind of when I realized I really hadn't done anything I liked except work on ranches and I went back to work uh started punching cows on big ranches in northern Arizona and uh by the time I was 19 or so I mean I kind of like well shoot this is what I like to do and I just kind of stayed with it I think it's neat that you figured that out by the time you were 19 instead of just continuing to do things you didn't like. My dad did not like to do anything, but he didn't like anything but cows and horses. He wasn't, uh, I don't know, he bounced around, did stuff he did not like to do, and I grew up with that, watching him. And... uh, I like to punch cows, and I thought every time I would go another direction, I would hit a dead end, and that's what I like to do, and I was very fortunate to be around some old guys that were the real deal, real cowboys, and worked on some really good cow outfits that were kind of the cattle were worked in a traditional way and there was a lot of pride taken in that by the old guys that I was around that's what I brag on I and I have made this speech several times publicly that I'm not going to brag about being a good cowboy, but I will brag on, I have, there's very few people that have been fortunate enough to work with the men that I've worked with and for. And, uh, Do you mind mentioning some of those guys? Like who are some of the guys that you learned? Learned the most from. I worked on a famous ranch north of Prescott called the RO, still there. It was owned by different people when I was there, family that had owned it for decades. 
and they had an old man. He turned 75 when I was there. He could rope a wild cow better than any guy on the ranch at that age. I saw him do it. He was born in the 1890s. His name was Whistle Mills. He was kind of a legendary old guy. I worked for him. Uh, worked for another really good cowboy named Johnny Andrews. Legendary guy in northern Arizona. Uh, worked for a legendary guy in Nevada named Charlie Chapin. I guarantee you, you go to northern Nevada now and mention the name Chapin. You know, he's very, very well known. He's not alive now, but uh, the person who influenced me more than anybody was the guy who ran the Babbitt Ranch for 20-some years named Bill Howell, who eventually became my brother-in-law, but he was a lot older than me. But he was... uh, the best cowboy I ever knew, all things considered. One of the very rare guys. He had no education at all, but he ran a big ranch successfully, made it, it made money. That's documented. He could ride a bucking horse better than anybody I ever saw. It was probably the best roper I ever saw. Was the best cowman I ever worked with. He was an artist at working cattle, big bunches of cattle, big herds, big. He savvied that kind of stuff. was kind of hard to be around at times. But he knew what he was doing. And I worked for him for 15 years, all told. And if I'm a cowman, it's because of him, watching him, and he wasn't really a teacher. I mean, he didn't ever give anybody much advice, but I was around him and watched him, what he did. I mean, those would be, and a lot of other guys, uh, worked with a lot of guys, old guys, guys born in the 1890s and the tens and the teens. Yeah. Uh, good old men that knew what they were doing. And I feel very fortunate about that. That's cool. That's cool that you could be around so many different people who you felt had an influence on you. Right. They knew uh, what they were doing. Yeah. You mentioned the traditional way of working cattle and stuff. Um, Do you mind explaining that a little bit? Well, traditional and say the ROs when I was there, and they do not operate like that now, but uh, it was almost like it was old Whistle was a premier cowboy. (laughs) He had, as far as he knew, Cattle were still sold by the head, not the pound. I mean, he wasn't a manager guy, but (laughs) he could get the cattle gathered. 
and get him to the shipping pen. And he was a good cowman as far as basic knowledge of a cow. But they would, when I worked there, this seems crazy now, but this is 50 years ago. But uh, they branded in the spring, and in the fall, they did not wean their calves. We sold, they'd have like 3,500 cows thereabouts. Rough country, really good ranch, but it was rough. And we weaned a few of the bigger steers and shipped them, but all the other calves, they just left them on the cow. And we sorted out coal cows and shipped them and we they had a lot of yearlings from the year before and we shipped them but all those calves were left on the cow so then in the spring you would make a drive gather a herd every day and put it together you would sort them outside without the help of a corral and changed horses every day You'd ride a drive horse in the morning or a circle horse, they'd call it up north, but you change to a horse. Maybe I rode lots of colts, so I'd usually get on another colt. But if you had a horse you thought was a better cow horse, you'd ride it and you'd sort these cattle outside in a what in Nevada they'd call it a roe deer. In Arizona they'd call it a roundup. But uh, so this was in the spring, so they would cut all the yearlings out then that would be the calves they did not wean the fall before. And those cows, they would have a new baby, but a lot of those yearlings would be following their mother still, even though they weren't sucking them. And then you'd drive those yearlings, you'd brand the calves, and you'd drive those yearlings to a holding pasture somewhere, and they didn't want to leave their beef. But that old guy knew what he was doing. He knew how to handle cattle like that. But it was you kind of had to do it right, or you weren't going to drive those yearlings away from their mother. It was a cowboy deal. Uh, at Babbitt's, or well, the Diamond A's, biggest ranch in Arizona same you'd throw herds together outside and sort them somebody would go in the herd and cut whatever needed to be separated and you did a lot of outside work that's one thing I think that less and less is seen today people go to a corral and sort cattle in a corral uh, I worked thousands and thousands and thousands of cattle outside in a roundup. Uh, I've seen Bill Howell throw a big herd together. I tell people this, but it's the truth. Uh, <laughs> say a thousand cows, 1,200 cows. I've seen Bill have multiple cuts. You'd have big crew of men holding a big herd outside and maybe have two or three different cuts. So he would be cutting cattle out, sometimes two guys cutting. And you'd have, say, a herd of dry cows or a cut. 
you'd have one guy holding a cut of dry cows over here and maybe a cut of short-age pears over there and a cut of coal cows over there or something to that effect. And if you were between the roundup and the cut, like holding the herd, but the cutter, whoever that may be, was cutting by you, you were turning back for him, you were expected to know what the cattle, whatever he was cutting out, you would be expected to know what cut to put them in. Uh, you, cool. I don't think you see that much now. Uh, yeah. So stuff like that, branded lots of calves outside the same thing whole throw cattle together in a road ear round up and uh, rope them and drag them to the fire and all this was done without the use of a corral. Stuff like that. People go, and I'm not saying there aren't some cattle worked outside now, but well, another thing, I don't want to get on a soapbox, but <laughs> no, go for it. <laughs> uh, another thing I notice nowadays is cell phones. I guarantee you, if you're working for Bill Owl or Whistle Mills, and you were sitting around to round up, and he was trying to cut a cow by you, and you would have answered your cell phone. You would have got a cousin. <clears throat> I mean, that would not have happened. And today. Everybody's got a darn cell phone in their pocket, and you might be cutting cow a cow out of gate, and the guy will, his phone will go off, and he'll be talking on the phone. Or you know, I've seen guys branding calves, holding a phone to their ear with their shoulder. As they, I mean, that just that kind of stuff did not happen when I was a kid. I mean. <laughs> Uh, where cell phones didn't exist, but you know, you just didn't. That and I laugh. One thing that has changed: you'd be around a crew of men, and this this is a good thing that has changed. But it's just a change in history. You'd be around a ten or twelve man crew, cowboy crew on a roundup crew on a big ranch and almost without fail every one of them would be a smoker everybody smokes <laughs> and today people you don't see that many people smoking which that's a good thing but it's a change uh and uh another thing i've noticed this will probably make some people mad but it's a truth uh you'd be around cowboys and uh, there weren't very many people overweight. Cowboys tended to be lean. When I was a kid, you'd be a crewman. I've got pictures. I've got a lot of pictures. Uh, and there'd be crews of men. There's one. I got a book here by the famous photographer, Kurt Marcus. Several of his books with dozens of pictures of crews and every guy in the crew would be lean and trim 
<laughs> Maybe it's because they were all smokers. <laughs> it's just a funny little piece of kid bit uh, of history, but it's it's it is something that I noticed. Yeah. Anyway, uh in your opinion, are cowboys as good today as they were back in the day? Uh Several years ago, two or three years ago, I was given an award in Texas by the Ranch Heritage Center. They have what actually is coming up here in a couple of weeks now or month, what they call the Golden Spur Award. And then a couple of years ago, they added a second award called the Working Ranch Cowboy Award. Boots O'Neill was the first recipient, and I was the second. Now, I don't know why they did that to me. I mean, I when they called me and told me they were giving it to me, I asked the guy, uh, this is a prank call, right? I mean, is, <laughs> you know? So I had to give an acceptance speech. Red Steagall was the MC, and I, and I actually know Red. Great guy. And there's 400 people there, big banquet. And I thought, what am I going to tell these people? And I stood up and this, uh, I said, I've never told anybody that I was a good cowboy, but I will say I have worked with good cowboys. And a lot of them are a lot younger than me. Both of my kids, I tell this, and it's the truth, when my kids were 17, they were better cowboys than I was when I was 22. So, yeah. There's lots of really good young cowboys around, lots of them. Yeah. And uh, the only negative part about the younger generation is their, as the Ian Tyson song says, their range is getting smaller. There's fewer opportunities available to use your cowboy skills but no there's i don't i know a lot of guys half my age that are very very capable and more so than i am so i i have nothing negative to say about i know a lot of guys well i've already said it do anything i can do in your words, how how would you um, define the word cowboy? Well, that's a good question. Everybody on everybody Earth has a, a different diff- answer. So yeah, I like everybody has them. a different answer. I mean, to people in town, all you have to do to be a cowboy is go into a store and buy a pair of boots and a hat. Uh, that's one of the tragedies of the American West, in my opinion, is if you are an investor and you invest in a hospital, you're going to hire somebody in the medical field to manage it. If you're a, a trucker, a wealthy per guy going to buy a big trucking company, you're going to hire somebody experienced in the trucking business to manage your and so on and so forth ranching is not that way uh 
if you're a wealthy guy and you buy a big ranch somewhere, all you have to do to run your ranch is go buy yourself a hat and a pair of boots and you're instantly a cowboy. <laughs> and I have seen that all my life. You know, to some people, a rodeo, top rodeo hand, Ty Murray or Tough Cooper, you know, they're cowboys too. People are, you know, all you have to do is have the stuff or own a horse or whatever. And that's fine. I don't have anything against that. For me, a cowboy, what I define as a, one of my peers is somebody who knows how to work cattle, gather work, and get the job done on a ranch. That's what I consider to be a real cowboy. Uh, I have, I love rodeo. I've, I've done a lot of competitive roping and all that type of stuff. I have nothing against it. And I like the people that do it, but, uh, for the most part, guys that rodeo are, they're professional athletes to me. Mm -hmm. And they were, they were a hat and a pair of boots. Whistle Mills was a cowboy. <laughs> That's, and he would, nobody, you know, very people, especially today, nobody even knows who he was. And he was not a famous guy when he was alive. He was just an old cowboy that wore a khaki shirt and never had, never won a belt buckle in his life and didn't have any trophies and was not well known at all. But, he was a cowboy. So, I mean, that's, and I don't mean that in a derogatory way toward. Yeah. Yeah. But that's what a cowboy is. Most of the guys that I consider cowboys were never well known. Or I know a lot of really great cowboys that never won a buckle in their life or received an award in their life. Yeah. Or any or any recognition. You're in you're in southern Arizona now, right? And yeah, I spent. Well, I tell people I spent most of my life in northern Arizona. I consider myself a northern Arizona guy, but yeah, I've been running a ranch down here for over 25 years. Okay. And it's a it's a good ranch. It makes money, and you know, it's a successful place, and I like it, but I'm really a northern Arizona guy. I worked in northern Nevada. I run a big ranch in southern California one time. I worked in southern New Mexico. Or, but northern Arizona is home to me. You've been all over the place, it sounds like. So I know that different ranches like tend to have their different challenges and their different positive things. Have you noticed? that as you've managed different places or do you think the challenges are the same wherever you go no there's definitely every place has its own difficulties absolutely uh the problems on ranches are facing people who are in decision making positions may vary shoot 50 miles away I mean, the ranch I'm on isn't necessarily 
going to face the same difficulties as my neighbor. Uh, and certainly 500 miles is a huge. So there's, yeah, there's different problems. But I think ranches, as far as many, now we're kind of talking management, uh, there are some common denominators. Uh, the cow market being the biggest challenge. Everybody that raises cattle and sells them is facing, you know, the, and the producer is always at the bottom of the totem pole. We have very little control over the market, uh, and that's that's a common denominator that we all a problem we all face. Huge problem. Yeah. And drought, weather conditions, especially in the Southwest, but a great deal of the West right now faces drought. We have been in a horrible drought here for several years, although then since June, this has probably been the best summer of my entire life. I mean, things are good here right now. And a great deal of Arizona has kind of healed up, but I've got friends in eastern New Mexico and Texas. And uh, drought is a real issue, and it's but it always has been. I remember growing up, I was a little kid, and my dad and granddad were talking about how dry it was. We, my philosophy is, I think a lot of people have the wrong attitude, at least in the desert. Now, you know, Western Oregon or California or Washington or different places are different, but a great deal of the West, people think they live in a wet country and it gets dry once in a while. In my opinion, we live in a dry country and occasionally it gets wet. <laughs> and you need to maybe change your philosophy and adjust to that. Uh, a great deal of time it's dry, and those times are in inflation. Our input costs on these ranches are shoot, uh, supplement feed. This one type of feed that I put out just last year or this year from December of last year till June of this year, the price went up like 30%. Wow. So, and those problems are pretty much the same everywhere you go west of the Mississippi or east, too, as far as that goes. Mm -hmm. You know, shoot, 50 years ago, you could buy a big ranch for what a new pickup costs now. So. <laughs> Anyway, those are things that we all have to deal with. And you're you're close to the border too, right? So you have added challenges. Yes, I live. Yeah, and yeah. Can you I, tell us I, a little bit about what it's like to ranch down there. <laughs> I've written a couple books about that actually, but uh, the. One of the biggest things about living on the Mexican border and the way it's been the last 30 years, 
is is very frustrating in that you deal with things here, bad stuff, violent stuff. It's like living in a war zone, literally. It's like living in the Golan Heights in Israel and Hezbollah is launching missiles, lobbing him into your front yard. I mean, it's not, I, I don't even want to get started, but I, like I say, I I have a book people can read. Tell, <clears throat> I tell all about it, Alligators in the Moat. You can get it on Amazon. But uh, it's very frustrating in that even here, is, I live 20 miles north of the border. The southern end of this place I'm on is about 15 miles north of the border. But I have friends on the border. I mean, the for 30, 40 miles north of the border, it's a zone. A guy, a guy named David Aguilar, who used to be the head of the Border Patrol, he actually said one time, and this is a direct quote, the border is not a line in the sand. It is a 25-mile corridor uh, that is a separate country. That, those were his words, not mine. Wow. And yet, uh, so who's the president of that country? I, if I live in a separate country, uh, who's my president? Who do I pay taxes to? Well, I, I have to pay taxes to the same place you do. And yet we live in this this bureaucrat who will retire at 150000 year a year. He himself said it was a separate country. And yet you get 50 miles north of here, even that close, and people do not understand what you're having to live through. And when you talk about it or complain about it, they treat you like you're crazy. <laughs> and I'm not crazy. And that's all of us who live right here and have had to live through what we have faced that same, it's almost like being ostracized in that we have to live through that, but people get sick of us griping about it. That's one of the, uh, anyway. Yeah. yeah. Well, what was the of, book called? I'll have to go check it out. I wrote a book called Alligators in the Moat. Politics and the Mexican Borders on Amazon, and I wrote another book. is actually a novel about a guy who was kidnapped by cartel outlaws, and it's the title of it is Kidnapped, and it's on Amazon. Wow! Yeah, I'll have to go check those out. I've always been curious what it's like, so I think that would be a yeah. good story. Well, read those two books, and you'll be better informed. Yeah, I guarantee you, they are. They are spot on. Yeah. But anyway, well, on a all the people, the people that come across the border, the, and this is factual, between about 13% of them have a criminal record. About 8% of them have a criminal record of some kind of violent crime, rape, child molestation, kidnapping murder, and 6 to 8% of them have an outstanding a warrant for their arrest 
somewhere in the United States when they enter the country. They've been here before, and they are wanted. Uh, Those are government statistics. I would say the numbers are probably even a little higher than that. So a lot of people that come across the border are fine people. They're just looking for a better life. Nowadays, they're coming across the border because they get free stuff. But a large percentage of those people are outlaws. And they burglarize, those of us who live, I have been burglarized multiple times. I've had vehicles stolen from, I've had people enter the house. uh, And everybody that lives down here has a story like that or multiple stories to tell. So it'd be hard not to get worked up over that if it happens. Another thing, and I'll end with this, we'll move (laughs) on to another subject, but, and I, I'm not bashing Trump at all, but you can build a wall a thousand foot high and grease the outside of it with weapon oil daily, and they are going to keep coming as long as we buy their drugs and as long as the government gives them free stuff. We will not. There is no amount of Border Patrol or ICE is going to stop this. And any politician that says that they're going to is a liar. We keep buying the drugs and we keep giving them free stuff. They are going to come. So I'll stop there. Yeah, can't even imagine. But on a happier note, (laughs) what would you say the best part of living the kind of lifestyle that you live is? Well, I've been fortunate enough to make a living doing something that I enjoy. Uh, I don't have to live in town. I don't have to live in a slum. I don't have to deal with large amounts of traffic every day. I'm out in the wide open spaces and beautiful country and uh, breathe clean air. And I do something that I enjoy doing. And my wife likes it. My wife isn't a town girl. She doesn't like the shop or, you know, she likes it. And it's best place in the world to raise a family. Uh, you want to, you want to put your children in a good atmosphere, uh, get them on a ranch or a farm. Best place in the world for a kid. So. I like that. Um, you, Since you have been all over the place, um, I like to ask people, too, where the coolest place they've ever been horseback is. Can you name one, or do you have multiple? Oh, I have, man. I could talk for hours about that. Uh, but I keep another thing. I'm fortunate I keep having new adventures. I've got a cowboy friend who bought a ranch north of me a hundred and some miles in the roughest place on the planet up above, right on the, it's in Arizona, but right on the New Mexican border, right where the blue and the San Francisco river come together. And I mean, it is rough, steep, rocky, very, 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 difficult country to gather and I mean it's a 
deal. Very isolated. He lives 50 miles from town, and it takes you two and a half hours to get there. <clears throat> the road is so twisty and windy. And because of that, it's probably not the best ranching place in the world. <laughs> but it ain't my place. It ain't my problem. And I, the guy, we, I trade help with the guy. He's a good hand. And, uh, I go up there and help him. And there's a place on the San Francisco River this back, I don't know, 100 years ago or something. Some people got some water rights, and they divert a little water into a little 100-acre farm there, have some irrigated fields, and this river is in a canyon. I mean, it's, well, from my viewpoint where I was, I was, here three months ago, I guess, I took some pictures. I asked a guy to take me and show me. My son, Everett, who you talked to, he had been at the same spot a year or two before that. And I was in that area, but I had never been right there where I could see this. And so anyway, we rode up to this rim rock, looking down into this canyon, and we were 500 Six eight hundred foot higher in elevation and about a mile away, looking down on these green fields and this wild river. We were up there. We were a mile away from the trees along this river, and we could hear, hear wild turkeys gobbling down there. It was it was early, <laughs> in the morning, but uh, fantastically beautiful spot. Uh, yeah, you know, I've seen lots of stuff like that. Uh, it's called Martinez Field on the San Francisco River. I don't know, 15 miles above Clifton, Arizona. <clears throat> it take you hours to get there in a vehicle, but stuff like that. Very yeah. places That's... that very few people ever see. Yeah, you know how to paint a good picture. I could picture that in my mind. <laughs> Yeah, and we couldn't, we were a mile away and we could not get there from where we were. We could have got there, but we'd had to ride 10 miles to get there. Yeah. If you were not going to get there from where we were, looking down on it. But we could hear the turkeys below. <laughs> <laughs> when you look back on your life, do any favorite memories in particular stand out to you? Too many to count. Uh, one fond memory of mine was. Uh, Something I did with Bill Howell <clears throat> 35 years ago, I don't know. Uh, it was on the Little Colorado River, which the Babbitt Ranch borders that river for 20, 30 miles. I don't 20 miles. Borders Navajo Reservation for 50 miles. And the uh, Indians and uh, the, most of the Babbitt Ranch was up way up higher in elevation. But there was always, there was no fence on that river. And so Indian cattle getting, or horses getting on the ranch was always an issue. And there got to be a bunch of wild cattle on that river. And there got to be so many of them, they were getting on us. And so we were, we would go down there when we didn't have anything else to do and rope these wild steers just to deplete their numbers. And it was fun. And uh, 
would catch these steers and haul them, give them back to the Indians. We were not stealing them at all. But so one cold morning, there was a six, I think about six of us went down there. And Bill was the boss. He and I went off one direction, and these other four guys went off another direction. It was about sunup, and it was cold. These cattle had shade up in these salt cedar thickets in the daytime or get down in there and hide where you couldn't see them. But in the night, they'd go up out of this river, and it was pretty open, actually. It's kind of some mesas and canyons, but not really all that rough. Easy to get around in, but they'd be way out from that river at night. Then they'd go back to the thickets in the daytime. Bill and I were riding along. We roped a yearling bull and tied him down, and we were looking for these cattle. So I ride over to this edge of this little mesa, and I look off down, and here was this herd, a dozen or 15 head of cattle, and they were coming. They had been miles out there in this painted desert, and they had heard us, and they were trotting toward the river down, going down this draw. And it was easy to, it wasn't flat, but it was easy to get around. And I had drifted off, I was two or 300 yards away from Bill. He was looking off one side of this little mesa, and I was looking out there. I looked down to see this cattle, and we were cinched up and ready. And I hollered, I fell off of there in pursuit of these cattle. And... uh they were a mile and a half from the river, I suppose. And they were in a trot, moving on, single file, just a lumbering along like a bunch of old mules or something. <laughs> and I run up and rope this full, you know, mature steer, big steer. He was as tall as a horse. And Jerked him down, bailed off, was tying him down. Bill run by me and hollered, you know, you all right? And he, yeah, go on. And he roped one, and I roped one. Anyway, we both roped three of these steers, full-grown, big steers. Uh, I roped, the last one I roped was right on the edge of the river, right before they hit the sand wash and the thickets and so, but in a in a five minute period, he and I both roped three big, big steers and tied them down. And then the other four guys come uh, riding up within a few minutes. They had been looking all around. They had found <laughs> Bill and I had actually had seven head of cattle tied down. That was a fun because uh, he was a master at that type of thing. <laughs> and uh, I was able to do it with him, and we both caught three. That's a good memory for me. Yeah. I would have liked to see the looks on the faces of the other guys when they caught up to you and saw oh, how uh, many you guys had. <laughs> we were, Bill and I were feeling good. It was how <laughs> we laughed them guys were disgusted with they actually have seen <laughs> we had seven head of cattle tied down. <laughs> what would your advice be to the next generation coming up? 
Well, <laughs> uh, have faith in God, pray a lot, and fight government intervention. I like it. <laughs> well, I think that I have asked all the questions that I was meaning to, but I don't want to cut you off if you have anything else you feel like you want to share. No, I'm uh, I'm good. I've had a I've had a blessed life, and I'm 71, and I shot a horse yesterday, and still work cattle, and still going. It's a hot topic in the state of Arizona. When's Ed going to retire? And Ed, <laughs> Ed is going to retire when they quit sending him a paycheck. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, good for you. <laughs> uh, yeah, I don't know when that'll be, but it ain't on my radar. Well, I've had a lot of fun visiting with you this morning. Thanks for taking time out of your day. Yeah, thank you. Good talking to you. That concludes my interview with Ed Ashurst. If you're like me and you want to hear more of his stories, you can find several of his books on Amazon. And like always, to put a face behind the name of who I talk to, you can head over to our Instagram page. It's at cowboystories underscore podcast. And last thing before I let you all go, if you know somebody who would be a good fit for the show and you want to nominate them, feel free to send me an email to cowboystoriespodcast at gmail.com. Mm-hmm.